Las Vegas, famous, fabulous playground of the West. A wide open town that never goes to sleep. Vegas! Vegas, baby, Vegas! You're in or you're out. Right now. My best mates are down in Las Vegas this weekend. I'm told it's incredible. Vegas, here we go! Pack your bags and get ready for a different kind of Vegas experience with someone who knows Vegas inside and out. You're listening to Vegas Never Sleeps with Stephen Maggi. Did you ever read Roger Kahn's great book, Boys of Summer? It's all about the Brooklyn Dodgers and really almost a love affair between a city and its baseball team, the Brooklyn Dodgers. And we have one of those great Dodgers, the great Carl Erskine, is with us today. Also with us is Upton Bell, our good friend, who remembers Carl there. Want to start out, Carl, first of all, thank you for joining us. The relationship between the team and the borough and so forth. You think that's ever been duplicated anywhere? Because it sure was special at that time. I think it was special. And, uh, well, Brooklyn, you know, was sort of an orphan uh, borough of New York. We had the glitz of downtown uh, Broadway and all that. And Brooklyn was a city of churches and uh, botanical gardens and uh, just peaceful homes. And uh, so uh, the Dodgers with Jackie Robinson, the centerpiece, uh, kind of took their rightful place in New York uh, as being one of the one of the grandest places to be. Uh, peaceful uh, homes, and uh, there, there were no great hotels or nightclubs in Brooklyn. I, that all was over in the big city. But uh, Brooklyn was a city of churches, and I think that uh, played its way, way out just like that. You know, you joined the Dodgers in 48. It was one year after uh, Jackie Robinson broke the color barrier. What was spring training like then when you joined? Was there still kind of a lot of buzz around Jackie? There was plenty of buzz around Jackie because, number one, he was such a great athlete. And uh, it was a time in history when the culture was making a big change. And Jackie was the centerpiece of that. So, yes, uh, not only the baseball world, but the world in general uh, saw that Jackie was a a person who stepped into history, making a huge change in our culture. Were the teammates all on board with him at that point? I I never heard any teammate make any snide remarks or uh, any disparaging comments about Jackie. And there's a good reason for that. Jackie was a, an intelligent person. He was such a centerpiece in the success of the Dodgers. The history of the Dodgers uh, in Brooklyn was a second division team for many years until Jackie joined the, the team. They became a constant potential leader in the National League. So, yeah, he had a huge impact uh, on baseball and uh, rightfully so, because that did open the door for uh, not only baseball, but, you know, across the athletic scene, black athletes always been a great uh, talent. And so, but Jackie got the door wide open, so not just he could have a historic career, but uh, there were many black 
athletes, great athletes, waiting in the wings for the chance to come on the big stage. And Jackie got the door open. Carl, one one of the uh, important things in that time, I was uh, 10 years old. My father was the commissioner of Burt Bell of pro football. And the year before, Kenny Washington and Woody Strode broke the color line in the NFL in 1946. And uh, basically, you guys later on, 1947 with Jackie, a lot of people didn't know, and I wonder if you, if you're, you as, as a teammate and, and the Dodgers team realized, to me, Jackie Robinson really was considered a better football player than a baseball player and would have uh, been drafted, I think, in the first round by the NFL if the color line had been broken earlier. Did many people know that how great a football player he was? Well, uh, my roommate in baseball was Duke Snyder. And Duke lived in Compton, California, when Jackie was a uh, student at UCLA. So he saw Jackie play uh, as a football player. And, and Duke always contended that uh, baseball wasn't Jackie's best sport. That football would have been the best sport for Jackie. But the door was closed in the NFL. Uh, it, it finally came open in baseball, and that's where Jackie made his move. But uh, Duke always contended that Jackie was a greater football player probably than he was baseball. Well, you room with Duke Snyder. To, uh, talk a little about him because uh, he was really a great player, and probably if he was anywhere but, uh, but New York City where there were three teams, three great teams, uh, he probably would have been uh, the, the toast of the town. And as it was, he was the toast of Brooklyn. What was he like, and what, what kind of a roommate was he? Oh, Duke and I were closest brothers. Uh, Duke was an only child, but I had a couple brothers quite a bit older than me. So I was almost like an only child. So Duke and I bonded so well. We were roommates for at least a decade. And uh, Duke was always uh, a class act, uh, not only in baseball, but off the field, too. But in baseball, he he had a grace about his... Uh, uh, movements in outfield and running the bases. Uh, they always gave DiMaggio credit for uh, having such an unusual, unique uh, circling of the bases. Well, Duke was that way. He had a classic uh, movement about him, and of course, uh, the stats show what a great, uh, what a great player he really was—a Hall of Famer. Uh, and as my roommate. We shared a lot of our troubles with each other. I had a lot of arm trouble, and Duke was the only person in the world that knew as much about my arm problem as anybody. And uh, I don't know if that made him play extra great when I pitched or not, but he used to make some great plays uh, behind me as when I was pitching. You know, one of one of the things that uh, in growing up, and my father was very close to the people in baseball as being the commissioner of pro football. And that, in those days, you know, I went to more baseball games as a kid than I did at football games. But one of the things that being from Philadelphia, Philly as they call it, uh, is recall was interesting in that I remember the Dodger team of 1950 losing on the last day of the season to a Dick Sisler home run. I saw that TV game. And then, and then losing 
to Willie Mays and the famous uh, and and Bobby Thompson that shot her around the world and finally winning in '55. But it seemed like every year it was the Dodgers and the Yankees. Uh, I wonder if you could speak to the what had to be. It's one of the greatest Dodger teams during your period in, in the history of baseball. What was the disappointment like having all those great players and then losing? Many of those heartbreaking games that cost you the championship. Yeah, I'll tell you, it was a, a team feeling was more agonizing for our fans than actually for the team. The fans had never had a World Series winner, and ours was the time to do it, and we had the great team to do it. Probably the 53 team was the best team I ever played on, and many of the sports writers of the day said that was the best uh, Dodger team ever, even better than our 55 team. But uh, it was just like sports in other uh, settings. Uh, Sports play out, not like on paper, (laughs) but they play out on the field. And uh, we were predicted, we were a great team, had a a, a solid lineup. We should have won more, but that's not the way the game's played. It's played out there on the grass and the dirt. <laughs> and uh, the Yankees were a great team. I don't uh, ever say they were lucky or got all the breaks. Uh, they were a solid team with excellent pitching. And so we we matched up with them very well. Now, the stats don't show it that way exactly until 55. But uh, the players on the 52, 53 teams... Uh, if you look at all the stats, they were they were one of the strongest teams ever, and uh, of course Jackie Robinson was kind of the centerpiece of that team. And uh, but how has it played out on the field? We didn't win as many as we uh, we thought we should have, but uh, that's the way the game is. Well, '55 must have been great then, because that season was just the the culmination of all this all this waiting, no more waiting for next year or any of that stuff. Uh, was the celebration such that uh, was it more a sense of relief or was it a thing like wow we always knew this was going to happen and finally it has yeah and you know going up the runway after the final out at Yankee Stadium uh, we had a rookie Roger Craig and he recalls things that I didn't recall but he said after the Dodgers finally won finally brought the championship to Brooklyn that the clubhouse did not explode into celebration right away. And it's true, I remember, that there was a few moments up in the clubhouse that it was kind of a quiet reverence feeling, and uh, emotions were really high. And Roger Craig, the rookie, he said, Carl, I looked at Jackie. He had tears in his eyes. I looked at Gil Hodges. He had tears in his eyes. I looked at you. You had tears in your eyes. <laughs> Something I didn't observe, or if I did, uh, I didn't think anybody else did. But it was an emotional thing. and Believe me, I think the team itself, while we wanted to win, we wanted to play hard every time to win, but I think we all sensed that our Dodger fans in Brooklyn had suffered through seasons for decades, never to have a world championship. And honestly, it felt like we were so happy about the whole thing, but so extra pleased that our fans finally, finally got to celebrate a world championship. Uh, Have you ever 
seen a team since your team then, and I, I look at it, Roy Campanella catcher, Gil Hodges, first base, Pee Wee Reese, Jackie Robinson, and Duke Snyder. Uh, just that, that one, most of all Hall of Famers. Have you ever seen a team since then that had as many players on one team uh, that went on to the Hall of Fame or that great a team? You'd have to include a couple of managers in there as well that went in the Hall of Fame. No, that that was a unique team for its time. Uh, we felt like, uh, without boasting about it, we just had a solid lineup. And uh, the fifty, uh, the fifty-three team did not win the World Series. But if you look at the stats, that team had some of the greatest numbers. Uh, Fifty-two, probably as well. Uh, but. Uh, it's just like any sport. No matter what it looks like on paper or what you did in the past or how big a list of stars you have, when the games start, you've got to let the game play out and it becomes what it is. So we felt, without bragging about it, we felt like we had the greatest team in baseball. And I think we did at that time. 55 when we won, finally won it, uh, most of the players on that team said, well, 52 and 53 were better teams than 55. But the circumstance of playing it out didn't work in those uh, two other years. But 55, things kind of fell together. I pitched opening day in 55, and I remember getting a win against Pittsburgh, I think 6-1 to one or something. And I was always proud of that because... Uh, Johnny Padres finished the season with winning the seventh game. Uh, I got to pitch the opener that year and, and got it started off from, with a real good start. I don't know. We won uh, 10 straight and lost one that won another eight or nine, 10 straight uh, in 55. Com- camaraderie was so great. Do you think it was in part because in those days, it was the same guys year after year. I mean, you had retirements and so forth, maybe an occasional trade. But it's not like now with free agency. You guys were together, and it, by being together, I assume it, it it brings a camaraderie that you just can't get with constant movement. That's a good point. Uh, yeah, uh, we were together. That starting lineup, I think the bat boy could make it out because it was <laughs> the same every year for almost a decade. And, again, Jackie Robinson, of course, was our centerpiece. But we had Duke Snyder and uh, Pee Wee Reese, uh, Campanella. Uh, you probably mentioned all Hall of Famers. The players on those teams still feel like the 53 with the numbers uh, that were put up there was probably, our, in our minds, the best team. It wasn't the best team related to how how we won because – It took 55 before we finally got the championship. More with Carl Erskine, the last of the boys of summer who played for the Brooklyn Dodgers in just a moment. He's being honored this year by the Baseball Hall of Fame, being awarded with the Buck O'Neill Lifetime Achievement Award, which is given every three years for positive contributions to baseball's impact on society. This is Vegas Never Sleeps. Hey, I'm Paul Shortino, and you're listening to Vegas Never Sleeps with Stephen Maggi. Rock on. Let's go to Vegas, baby. Let's go tonight. Let's go to Vegas. We'll stay up all night. 
Greece is cheap. But the airfare costs a fortune. Paris? Not much closer. And again, airfare... What about Puerto Vallarta? Let's face it, flying anywhere is just too expensive. Wait, what's this? Low-cost airlines. With one call to low-cost airlines, you'll drastically slash your travel costs. We're talking insanely low airline prices to any of your favorite destinations. Where would you like to go? London, Rome, Costa Rica, Australia? Wow, that's cheap. So why wait? Call now to learn how crazy cheap it is to fly anywhere in the U.S. or international. Our prices are so low, we can't publish them. The only way to get them is to call to instantly hear the most amazing best deals on airlines travel. It's that easy. So call now and start packing. 800-430-7923. 800-430-7923. That's 800-430-7923. You're never completely ready to adopt a teen. For late nights writing English papers. For your teen's music taste. For dinners, where they talk more on their phone than with you. For the first time, they call you mom. You're never completely ready to adopt a teen, and you can't imagine the reward. To learn more about adopting a teen, visit AdoptUSKids.org. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Adopt US Kids, and the Ad Council. Holy Gentle Giants Dog Food Batman! I'm Burt Ward, Robin from the Batman TV series. I was the Caped Crusader, and now I'm the Canine Crusader. After rescuing and feeding 15,500 dogs for 23 years, my wife and I created a natural, low-fat, heart-healthy, made-in-America dog food and special feeding and care program designed to help all dogs live amazingly longer, healthier, happier lives. Our dogs are living as long as 27 healthy, active years. Yours can too. That's twice their normal lifespan and triple for some breeds. Would you like your dog to live as long as 27 years and still be active and healthy? Gentle Giants Dog Food is complete nutrition for all dogs and puppies, all ages and sizes, and is different from other dog foods without the greasy coating and high fat content that can shorten your dog's life. Try our Gentle Giants life-enhancing dog food for the longer, healthier, happier life of your dog. You're listening to Vegas Never Sleeps with Stephen Maggi. We are talking with Carl Erskine, the last of the Brooklyn Dodger players, chronicled in the book The Boys of Summer. Also with us is our good buddy Upton Bell. But you know, let's let's go back to a, a less happy day for Dodger fans. But I got to ask you about it. The shot heard around the world at the Polo Grounds, 1951. You and Ralph Branca are warming up, and they pick Branca and. Uh, it will put it all on him, but it didn't turn out. Bobby Thompson hits it out. Did that bother you? I mean, did you want to be the one to go in there, or is it just one of those things where eh, they make their decision and we'll go with it? Well, naturally, when you're a player, you want to you want in the lineup. You want to get in there. Yeah, sure. I was warming up and uh, waiting for the call, which finally came. And Sugarforth, uh, Clyde Sugarforth was our coach in the bullpen. He took the call from the bench and uh, dressing, asked, uh, I guess, are they ready? And I could hear Suki answer, yes, they're both ready. And uh, then he added this comment. Uh, they're, they're both got good stuff. Uh, Erskine's bouncing his curveball some. Well, Rube Walker was catching that day, and Campy was hurt. And the polar grounds had the longest distance 
to the, from the plate to the backstop. And Rube, who was an excellent catcher and a good power hitter, he was very slow afoot. And Dresden must have processed. We don't want any wild pitches uh, in this situation because the distance was so far behind and Rube was slow afoot. That must have... Nobody ever asked him that, so I heard an answer or two, but uh, that must have been the process of him coming to the decision, let me have Branca. Uh, and so Ralph went into the second pitch he threw with Thompson hit the home run. Uh, we were both ready. I, I had an overhand curveball that broke straight down. And to make it effective, it had to be down in the strike zone. So that meant by the time the ball got to the catcher, it was on the ground practically. And so Campy used to say, Carl, you bury that, I'll get it. Because he knew <laughs> that the best pitch was down, and he wanted me to throw that overhand curve. And he said, you just you just bury it, Carl, and I'll get it. So, And he did. He was a great, uh, had great hands as a catcher. So the way it played out, People often ask me, well, don't you wonder what would happen if they brought you in to pitch to Thompson? So I got curious about that, and uh, a sports writer kind of looked it up for me. Uh, what did, uh, how did you fare against Thompson as a hitter? Well, it turns out I faced him 12 times, I guess, prior to that, and he didn't hit any home runs off on me, but uh, I think I got him out... Uh, Oh, I forget the strikeouts, but it's three or four strikeouts in that 12, 12-inning stretch. On that one, there's always been a question and a controversy. Did the Giants steal uh, the signals from center field? That That's the first thing. The second part of the question would be, do you think Ralph Franca ever got over losing that game? Well, the first part there, we suspected, didn't have any proof, but we suspected somehow in the polo grounds that the Giants were stealing the signs some some way. Now, stealing signs in baseball is is fair game. That's part of the game. It was never the rules were never covering. What about uh, electronic uh, devices or? Uh, telescopes or what. It never covered that specifically. But so technically, and I guess other than ethically, stealing signs could be any way you could get them. And the, the, the Giants figured out with a telescope in center field uh, <laughs> that they could get them and they could relay the hit, the lay, uh, what pitch was coming to the hitter. Uh, we didn't know any of that uh, till it was all exposed 50 years later uh, by one of the former players, how they rigged up the system to get the sign to the hitter. Uh, and so it was 50 years after the fact, and the commissioner at the time was Ford Frick. Uh, I think he commented later, well, if I'd have known that, I would have forfeited the game. Wow. But uh, that was 50 years after the fact. Did Branca ever get over? You know, there's so many stories, and I've seen interviews with him. Did Ralph Branca ever get over giving that up? I mean, it was, the, to this day, people know about the shot heard around the world still. 
uh, for people unborn uh, today, they know what that is. What about Frank? You know, as being a teammate of Ralph, I was very close to him, talked to him a lot, and uh, we were friends off the field as well as teammates. I don't think it, that Ralph ever got over it, but what I do think that as time passed, that became such a historic moment in history that uh, being the goat, so to speak, as they used to say, uh, with Branca wearing the horns, I think that sort of went away, and Ralph enjoyed the fact that this moment that he was involved in was actually a piece of baseball history, and it took away the stench of, uh, being a goat or being, uh, you know, the the fall guy, uh, Ralph, I think, began to feel uh, more drawn into the picture as a piece of uh, baseball history, and it, it took away some of the unpleasantness of being the pitcher that threw the pitch. Now I don't know if that's explainable to you fans or not, but it sort of took away the stench of. Uh, the moment and put it in a context of this was the setting, this was the final pitch, and this is what happened as a piece of baseball history. So I think Ralph, in a way, kind of, uh, I wouldn't say enjoyed, but felt more uh, a part of a piece of history than he did being the guy that threw the wrong pitch. And I think it played out that way, that he and Thompson, we often kidded both of them, that they did so many appearances together. We said, gee whiz, the uh, rest of the pitchers wish we were Branca on the <laughs> uh, on the banquet trail. Uh, we're making a few bucks. I think Branca, as you know, was a, he handled it so well that uh, it was a, a piece of the history that he... I think enjoyed being a part of, and after the fact of being considered the goat, he was now more connected as a real piece of baseball history. I was wondering if you, all the Dodgers got sick of hearing the uh, Russ Hodges broadcast of that, because that's been played over and over. Does it make you cringe when you hear it, or is it just like, ah, that was an interesting season? Well, if I never hear it again, that would be too soon. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of something sad, uh, those Brooklyn years were so great, but it came to an end because they had to move to Los Angeles. Could you talk a little, did you guys see that coming where you knew it was going to be there? And how did that affect the players and so forth? On the one hand, going to Los Angeles, especially back then, wasn't a bad deal. On the other hand, you probably hated these to leave these great fans in uh, the area. Yeah, you know, Valley gets a lot of heat uh, for moving the team west. He was a New Yorker. And he wanted the team to stay in New York, and he tried his best to get the property in Brooklyn where he would actually spend his own money building a stadium. And yet he couldn't get that piece of property, and finally they enticed him to the, coming to the West Coast. But he was a New Yorker, and my understanding is that the property he wanted in Brooklyn has now been purchased and a 
a unique uh, stadium has been built on that site. In fact, where the uh, uh, the basketball team plays. Yep. Sixty years later, the same site turned out to be the property that Evans Field uh, could have been, uh, where it could have been located. So that's uh, kind of a twist of fate. You know, one of the things, speaking about that, Steve and Carl, think about this. I would get on the train with my father and go to New York, and we'd go to Touch Shores, which I'm sure you've been in. Touch Shores was a friend of my father's, uh, Carl, and, and uh, one of the interesting things is we'd say, well, I, we'll go to the Yankees game this night, we'll go to the Giants game this this day or night, and we'll go to Brooklyn. And and to me, baseball was never the same after the Dodgers and the Giants left. Not only that, but, you know, the great Willie Mays, all the great players on your team. Remember the famous song, Willie, Mickey, and the Duke? Oh, sure. Uh, yeah. and, and all of that. I, I just think, in my opinion, uh, even today, at my age, that broke my heart. I thought... That was the greatest thing on earth were those three teams in that city. Beanball, Sal the Barber, Bagley, Leo DeRocher, all, all, all of the craziness that went on. I just thought the, the Mets don't do it for me, I'm sorry, uh, even though they had that, that one you know, really great year. Uh, but they, 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 it just doesn't do it. It's not the Dodgers. It's not the Giants. It was, can you talk to how... Vicious that whole thing was at, at one time, particularly between the Giants and the Dodgers? Well, you know, we played every team uh, in the National League. Now, there was eight teams in each league. So we played the other seven teams 22 times each, Ooh. 11 at home, 11 on the road. But with the Giants and the Dodgers in the same town, we played all 22 games in New York. And so that rivalry was fierce. And the day you were in the lineup to play the Giants, it was like your manhood's on the line. It didn't matter what the standings were, who was in first or who was in second or last. When you played the Giants, it was like a series all by itself. Uh, it was, as I said, your manhood was on the line. Uh, and you hoped to your best day that you could beat the Giants as a pitcher in front of the home crowd, that would be the ultimate victory to win in front of your Brooklyn Dodger fans. And so uh, those games, you can talk about World Series and the atmosphere, uh, but this was a, a tense atmosphere as, as equal as not more so than a World Series game. Uh, when you're in the World Series, both teams are champions already. So you're in the spot that you can't do any better, hardly. <laughs> Win or lose, you're in the World Series. But uh, our Dodger fans, uh, they took it on the chin for years. So we finally, in 55, everything fell in place. And Johnny Padres, uh, sorry that Johnny's deceased now. Uh, Johnny Padres pitched uh, two great games in that series. Uh, I think he won the third game and the seventh. Uh, to give us a championship. And the only one that will ever be now, is that's the only one. I've got the ring to prove it 
uh, and I look at that ring once in a while, although it's in my lockbox right now, uh, and know what it meant. That ring, I don't know what it would sell for uh, if I put it up for auction, but uh, that's a, a very unique ring to own oh, yeah. uh, out of baseball. I want to close with you in terms of we've been talking a lot about camaraderie and really the team looks like a family, which if anybody knows you, Carl, knows that this is probably the perfect place for you because you've always been really – your family is really important to you, starting with your dad. He was your first pitching coach, as I understand it. Oh, that's true. Yeah, my dad was a semi-pro player, and he taught me the roundhouse curve, which <laughs> – it's not a very good curveball. It gives good hitters. But, yeah, my dad was a semi-pro player and uh, was a very big supporter of mine, of course. Yeah, he must have got a kick out of it. You know, you, you know again, when, when knowing how difficult it was to get to the level you were at, it had to be a big thing, I would imagine, for him. Oh, and my dad, I'm so happy that my dad lived long enough that uh, and he was retired uh, that he could come to all the games uh, possible. He came to New York many times. Uh, the five World Series that we're in, in my era, uh, he came to all those, my mother. And uh, I was always so happy that my dad got to see me pitch in a couple World Series. So, uh, yeah, he was a he was former player and he was really proud of me. I know that. What, one, one question, I, I, I'm talking about uh, uh, pitching and the Dodgers. Of all the pitchers you saw of that era, and I'm, I'm including you, know, you and, and Levine and, and, of course, Big Don Newcomb, who I interviewed just about 20 years ago uh, because I know that he had, a, he had a great fear of flying. Uh, at least he said he did, and that's how he became kind of an alcoholic for a while. But, but then Koufax, and uh, that includes the Giants with their great pitchers. Who was the greatest pitcher? You were either on your team or you pitched against during that era. Well, of course, uh, Robin Roberts is probably the uh, most dominant pitcher I, that we faced during those years. I pitched against Robin several times. You know who uh, was one of the great pitchers was Preacher Rowe. Uh, mm-hmm. Preacher Rowe was the ultimate uh, textbook on how to pitch. So the young guys on the team, uh, we didn't have pitching coaches uh, as former pitchers in those days. Uh, and most uh, pitching coaches in those days was, were catchers, believe it or not. But uh, Preacher Rowe was the he, – he was the older pitcher, and he was a pitching coach, even though it wasn't designated. But we all watched pitch Preacher, how he set up a hitter, uh, how he pitched, how he used off speeds uh, very effectively. And uh, so I, I give Preacher Row a lot of credit for the, as a young pitcher, we all went to Preacher with our questions about how to pitch to certain hitters. And he was an outstanding pitching coach, although he wasn't designated as such. And what did you think of the development, obviously, of Sandy Koufax? Did you ever imagine when he first came up what was going to happen to him? Koufax uh, was always a hard thrower, uh, and yet he was wild. Uh, he, he might pitch a game and allow two hits or something, and then the next time out, he wouldn't get out of the first inning. But a, a catcher, a backup catcher named Norm Larker, uh, 
uh, told Sandy one day, because he caught him warming up uh, a lot, and he told Sandy one day, he said, you're, you're working too hard. When you, when you throw about 80% of your best uh, velocity, your ball moves a lot more than when you try to throw it too hard. So he said, why don't you back off a little bit? Pitch you about 80%, your ball moves so good. Well, you know, that tip is what made Koufax a Hall of Famer because at, at the, it was a sudden change. Just overnight, Koufax became, uh, from a 500 pitcher, he became the most dominant pitcher in baseball, maybe, maybe all-time baseball, because Norm Larker said to him, ease up a little because your ball moves so much more when you don't try to throw it so hard. And that was a turning point in Koufax's career. Because he, he, for the next five or six years, I, I played with Sandy when he was a 500 pitcher. He'd win one, he'd lose one. He'd win one, lose one. But after that tip from Larker, uh, he was so dominant that uh, he made the Hall of Fame and maybe the shortest number of years of any pitcher ever. Uh, because I think five or six years, Koufax was dominant. I mean, he threw yes. pitches down the middle, uh, a batter swing, and look at his bat like, I thought I hit that ball, there must be a hole in my bat. Because <laughs> he, he became such a dominant pitcher with that tip from uh, Larker. So. Well, uh, one, one, th- one thing before Steve wraps it up, and, and that is um, a game that I will never forget. Uh, that Jackie tried to, his best to, to stop the no-hitter. The perfect game, you guys against Don Larson. Uh, I will never forget that game, watch it on television. And uh, what was it like? Uh, and if you could set us up, uh, that, that whole game going into it. I mean, Larson was just an average pitcher. You talk about Koufax. And, and of course, he's been immortalized with that game, and people will never forget it. Well, I was on the, of course, I was on the bench that day, and I think about the fifth inning. Somebody said, "You know, we haven't had a base runner yet." No kidding. We all said, "Really? Well, we better start watching," and we did start watching, and we never did get a base runner. So that was one of those most unique games in the history of baseball that any pitcher could ever uh, do what Larson did. Uh, he, his overall record. Uh, would not have set him aside as, as to do that. I mean, we watched it pitch by pitch by pitch. And Dale Mitchell was our last hitter. And uh, I think Artie Core was the umpire, I believe it was. And he was umpiring his last game. He was going to retire. And when it got down to the last pitch of the game, we, we all thought he called a bad third strike on Dale Mitchell. But, but it was a, what he called it, that's what it was, strike three and, uh, and a perfect game. So uh, re- unique to have watched that happen after all the decades of baseball and to see, see that come to pass was mighty special. Well, we asked you who the uh, best pitcher was that you went against. I've got to ask you, what was the toughest out that you had to uh, pitch to? Because there were a lot of great players in those days. Well, the toughest out was Stan Musial. Stan was a, a contact hitter. Now, a hitter is not a hitter unless he makes contact. 
I don't care how many home runs you had if you if you're if you don't make contact you can't you can't get anything. So Stan Musial was a contact hitter, and I pitched to Stan. I know because I was told this from a statistician that I faced him the most times of any batter in my 12-year career. 164 times I faced faced Musial. Now, in 164 times, I only struck him out four times because wow. he was a tough strikeout and uh, and a pure hitter. He was uh, pure in the sense, as uh, it's said in baseball, the greatest hitters hit the ball where it's pitched. If it's inside, they pull it. If it's down the middle, they hit it back up the middle. If it's outside, they hit it the other way. And that was that was musical as a hitter. He uh, he seldom struck out, and he might get uh, four hits in a game. Three of them would be line drives, but he'd get a bloop. Uh, he always made contact, so he always made you, uh, as they say, put it in play. Uh, so my time pitching against the Cardinals, I had a, I had a very good record against the Cardinals, 20, 22 and eight or twenty three and eight. But Musial always got his hits. So how do you pitch to Musial? Well, the best way to pitch to Musial is to keep the guys in front of him off the base. <laughs> yeah. When he doubles, nobody scores. I once was asked that question, and I said. The way I pitched the musical was throwing my best pitch and then back up third base. It was almost true. Uh, you, you know, you don't hear enough about Musial. He was such a great player. You know, there's so much talk about Mays and Aaron, who were obviously great, but you forget how really good he was if you didn't live in St. Louis. He was, and he played for a long time, too. Absolutely. I, I remember, I think he got his 40, 400th home run in Wrigley Field, and I heard the interview after the game. Uh, I said, what's it feel like, Stan? You had, you had 400 home runs. <laughs> he said, that's pretty good for a singles hitter. Hey, I, I, I do want to ask you, uh, and it's probably a stretch, Is I know the people say the players are bigger, faster, stronger, quicker, and everything else like that. They say the same thing in the NFL. Uh, is In your opinion... Is baseball a better game today than when you played and pitched? Well, if if you answer that, you almost have to say from what perspective? <laughs> from a fan, a former player, or what? Player. But let's I think say a player, yeah, from a player standpoint, I think defense is better today. And that has something to do with how the groundskeepers are now. Fields are almost perfect. Mm-hmm. The equipment, the gloves, uh, are lighter and bigger. So I think the defense in baseball is is better today than it was in my era. But that's that's an unofficial observation. <laughs> but is it a better game? Yeah, I think baseball is good today. I uh, and I I'm talking about defense. I think defense. I know the gloves are bigger and lighter and so forth. But defensive baseball today is beautiful. It's just, I love to watch defense, not just a guy that catches a home run going out of the ballpark, but the double plays and uh, the plays when the pitcher covers first and some of those uh, plays that look easy 
they're not easy. They're practiced over and over and over again, and it makes it look like uh, nothing to it. But uh, defense in baseball today, I think, is, is better than it's ever been. Well, let's close with this. I want to ask you, people talk about analytics all the time. Now, you strike me as a guy that knows statistics. You've mentioned a few, so you obviously care about them. Do you think that's good for the game, or would you rather see more of the pulling from your gut type of de- decisions as opposed to this guy's up, you, you pull the pitcher when this happens and so forth? Well, baseball's always had so-called the book. Well, the book was never a book. The book was always in your in the head. And uh, what's the book on this guy? He's a little fastball hitter or whatever. That was all uh, taught uh, generation after or decade after decade until the computer now uh, on the bench. Uh, you got all the stats. You got them stats going back 10 years or whatever. How many times this pitcher faced this hitter? What's the result? You got all that on the numbers that way. So baseball's always been by the numbers anyway. It was always the book was in your head, and now it's, it's more scientific, I guess, than ever. Uh, baseball always has reflected the uh, the culture of the times. Uh, you know, there was a time when baseball was only played in the sunshine, and then, unbelievably, lights were developed good enough that you could play games at night without a shadow on the ball. And it actually was easier to see at night than it was in different kinds of uh, sunlight or cloudy days or whatever in the daytime. So those technology changes uh, are true all the way along the line uh, as baseball has developed over the years. But the techniques of fielding a ball, bunting, throwing in the strike zone, those fundamentals are just as basic today as they were in my era or any era. Uh, That's the way you're supposed to play the game, and feeling a ball or uh, bunting the ball or any of the other techniques, uh, those haven't changed over 100 years. A fascinating conversation. Carl, thank you so much, and Upton, thank you too. I really enjoyed this. I love the boys of summer. Love the Dodgers. Always will. This was great. Well, I'll tell you what. I wake up in the morning and wonder, did that really happen? Did I really play with all these Hall of Famers? Did we finally win the World Series in 55? Uh, I relive a lot of that now at my age of uh, almost 95. What a team that was. What a group of super people not just by the stats they run up in baseball, but their their individual, uh, Pee Wee Reese and my roommate Duke Snyder and my catcher Campanella. Those are all terrific individuals, great personalities. I'm glad Roger Kahn caught a piece of that in his book, The Boys of Summer, because that was a unique team at a unique time in history for baseball. And I was fortunate, very fortunate, to pitch for that or pitch with that team and instead of against it. <laughs> yeah. I always thought, boy, I'd, I wouldn't hate, I'd hate to face that lineup. Please follow Vegas Never Sleeps on all social media platforms, including Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And thanks for listening today. This is Stephen Manchie reminding you, Vegas Never Sleeps. Oh, Vegas, here we go! 
Would you like to hear better for as little as 10 cents a day? Now you can with the all-new Audion hearing aids. The average hearing aid lasts about three years. Ours at only $99 a pair means you're paying as little as 10 cents a day to hear better. And to make things even better, we'll give you a 45-day money-back guarantee. Skip the doctor and get hearing aids delivered straight to your door. We've eliminated all the middlemen to offer you a factory direct price of only $99 a pair. Join over 300,000 people just like you who took advantage of our 45-day trial offer. Now you can hear better too for just 10 cents a day. Call now and order your $99 pair of Audion hearing aids with a 45-day money-back guarantee. Plus, get free 3-5 to five day shipping. 800-402-7914 That's 800-402-7914. Attention timeshare owners, this is an urgent consumer alert from the Timeshare Exit Hotline, a national company specializing in helping consumers legally get out of their expensive timeshare contracts. We're offering you a way to legally get rid of your timeshare. If you're fed up with the maintenance fees that keep coming and want to learn how you can terminate your timeshare legally and permanently, call today. Even if you've tried before and were unsuccessful in getting rid of your timeshare, call now and see if we can help. We offer a 100% unconditional client satisfaction guarantee. Make this completely free call and learn how we can help you legally put an end to your timeshare nightmare once and for all. You've got nothing to lose, so call right now to qualify and receive a free consultation, 800-803-5449. That's 800-803-5449, 800-803-5449. Everything is expensive right now. Gas, food, you name it. You're spending more, you're making the same or less money. So, what do you do? You rack up credit card debt. That's what you do. It's not your fault. It's the economy. And guess what? If you rack up too much credit card debt like some of us, you can't pay your bills. Then the credit card companies, as nice as they are, start hounding you for money. Then you start your downward spiral. A smart thing for you to do is to call the Zero Debt. They can help you consolidate all your credit card bills into one affordable payment. Millions of people have done it. It works to make you debt-free. Make this free call right now. It costs you nothing to learn more. 800-284-1349. 800-284-1349. 800-284-1349. That's 800-284-1349.